No. It's enough. Even torturing you is boring. This is the small council. And I have on the line with me Luke. He is nice guy Luke, smiley face Luke, uh, 2022 U.S. Nationals champion. And uh, we are doing currently the Watchers on the Wall segment, which is basically a step back to the basics of the game. Um, We kind of decided that we don't see a lot of content that's really truly geared towards beginner beginners. And so this segment is kind of what we're going to focus on. Very, very beginner stuff, like not, hey, you know the game, this is how to get better. We're just taking, we're going to basically follow you on every step of the journey from you unboxing your starter set to the point where you're ready to start putting models on the table, building a club, getting some paint going on. And today we're going to do kind of a deep dive into the rule book. So to preface the show, we're not going to sit and read every page of this rule book to you uh, because we don't want to be an audio book. But what we're going to do is we're going to highlight some sections of this rule book that aren't necessarily super immediately obvious. Some things that you can get yourself caught tripping on, some things that may not be super clear. And we just want to stop you from developing some bad habits and, and maybe point out some of the niche things in the game that we take for granted uh, having played the game since its release. So. Uh, say hi, Luke, and uh, we'll get cracking. Hey, everybody. I'm glad to be here uh, and excited about this show. I know we've got a lot of new players in my area, and like Brett said, there's not a lot of content geared towards new players. So uh, if you are a new player, you've got a new player in your area, uh, we really hope that this show you know, kind of sheds some light on things that aren't quite obvious to new players, uh, but will help get them up to speed as quick as possible. That's the goal is, uh, you know, we want to grow this community. We love seeing new players come around. We love seeing new communities develop. I'm always encouraged by seeing the numbers in the Facebook, A Song of Ice and Fire page grow. I think we're up above 12,000 members now. I just saw a welcome post, and it was a pretty long list, like maybe 30 new people. So always very, very good to see. Um, And so, yeah, just kind of cracking it off, I think. I think you are looking at uh, this tabletop war game, and I I think you've chosen a great game um, for any number of reasons. We kind of touched on last week how it's simple to pick up and relatively difficult to master, but it is easy to get, you know, yourself playing with, even if you're playing at home on the kitchen table, it's easy to get the game going. Uh, That, when we look at this rule book here, that's a very, very good thing about the rule book. It's short. 36 pages. It's even got some art. It's not filled with a lot of bloat. And I think a lot of the rules and, and, and the, the playing of the game is relatively simple. There's a few niche things that we're going to cover, but uh, let's just get on to it. Uh, so you're, we're starting on page five of the rule book, skipping some of the introductory stuff. Um, and we're looking at the v- common game terms. So the first game term that comes up is an activation. Um, Obviously, you you probably know by now this is an alternate activation game. 
I feel that it makes the game much more interactive. You don't ever have a time where you're sitting and waiting on your opponent to complete his entire turn in 20 minutes. They take a quick turn, then you take a turn, then they take a turn, then you take a turn. Um, Each unit has its own activation each round. It is important to note that some effects and abilities only take place during an activation and would not, for example, happen during a free action given to the unit. So the important thing the important thing to note about that is an activation is totally separate from an action. Uh, I see people ask a lot, you know, if I take the free attack zone on the tactics board, is that my activation? That's the first thing I want to hammer into you. Activation is something totally different from actions, shifts, anything else in the game. Uh, do you have anything else to add to that, Luke? No, yeah, that's that's absolutely true, and and I see a lot with new players if they ask, you know, can I can I still do a free attack if I've already activated that round? And and that free action uh, description right there tells you yes, whether it's before your activation or after unit activation, uh, free action is a free action. Yep, very pretty simple. And as we get into it and go into the activation phase and and things like that, it'll make a little bit more sense. So moving on, attacker. This one's it's very obvious. Uh, the person who's performing an attack, that's a melee attack or a ranged attack. Um, a charge has a melee attack tied into it. We'll get to that a little bit more when we get into the section where we talk about charging and, and making an attack. But really simple. The attacker is the one that's doing the attacking, rolling the attack dice. Yep, and that's uh, whether it's ranged or melee. Yep. Enemy, anything that's a unit or a card not controlled by you. Your opponent does something to you, he's your enemy. Pretty straightforward, right? Yep. Defender, same, straightforward, same as attacker. Uh, if you're rolling defense dice or someone is attacking you, otherwise you are you're the defender. Um, first player. Um, you know, I think, they, I think they cleared this up. In the older rule books, there was a, a point of contention about player one and player two when you were setting up the game modes. If something ever comes up about that, player one is not synonymous with first player. First player is just the person in a given round who is taking the very first uh, turn to make their activation. That's what first player is. You get the first turn of any given round. Yeah, and the one thing I'll say about first player is uh, because it alternates each round um, from one player to the other, if at any point there's a rule that makes a player the first player, uh, the next round it will continue to alternate. So if you were the first player the round before, you won't be the first player the next round. Even if yep. the rule would change, you know, the order of those, uh, a couple abilities in the game that can change who's the first player, but it always alternates. Yep, and that's a, that's a really good point, actually. I'm glad you brought that up because it kind of slipped my mind. Uh, you have Walter Frey's NCU. And in Winds of Winter, you have a mission that can swap the first player order. So a player can potentially be first player in round two and then be first player in round three. And I have heard people ask if they're first player again in round four because that was established at the beginning of the game. But it's, it is definitely noted that first player always swaps. Mm-hmm. Okay. So friendly. Um, I'm going to read this one. Friendly refers to any unit or card controlled by you. When an ability or effect targets a friendly unit, it may include any such unit whose tray is even partially in range of the effect, including the unit from which the effect originates. Now, that's something that I'm, I'm pretty glad that they cleared up. Um, it used to, in the wording, uh, something like emboldened didn't cover the unit itself. It covered 
other friendly units and things like this. So just keeping in mind that, you know, you might have to read it because some still say other, but if it says within short range, it can be the tiniest little, tiniest little part of your tray within six inches you are considered being within short range of a friendly unit. And while we're on that subject, this is a good point to bring up for anybody who's played other miniature games. Everything in this game that's on the battlefield is measured from trays. It uh, doesn't care where your models are on the tray. You measure from any part of the tray. Keep in mind. Yep. So when we get to some of those terrain features that measure short range and then into some of the, those abilities that measure short range, it's any part of the tray. Just something to keep in mind, as he said. Uh, hits and automatic hits. When units are attacked, each success generates one hit. Sometimes an effect will generate a hit without needing to roll. All hits and automatic hits allow defense saves. Unblock hits are converted into wounds. Now, this is a, this is a topic that we'll get into more. I'm not 100% sure if it's covered in the rulebook or if it's something we'll just have to make you aware of. There are things in this game that generate hits outside of an attack. So it's very important to distinguish those hits from the hits from an attack because there are implications with defense abilities and there are implications with the panic test as to whether you need to take a panic test or not from taking automatic hits, something we'll get more into later. But um, the important thing to note here is uh, an automatic hit will always allow a defense save. Yeah, completely agree. Okay. In short range or long range. Uh, this We kind of just touched on that. Um, units are always considered to be within range of their own effects and may target themselves unless specifically stated otherwise. The important thing to note there is, as I said, you'll have some abilities that say other friendly units in short range. In that case, it would not target you. But if it says all friendly units in short range, you are always within short range of yourself. Now, and Brett, as part of the 2021 card update, these cards no longer say long range or short range for melee or ranged attacks, rather. Um, now, I believe it's just one arrow represents short range. Arrows indicates long range, which is 12 inches. Yep, correct. And those are measured from the front arc, but I know for sure that's down into the section on, um, down into the section on ranged attacks. Uh, models are miniatures that represent either player's army on the table. Terrain and tokens are not models. So basically the model is your miniature on the tray. There are some uh, abilities and effects that note removing a model. In that case, uh, it's a whole model. So if it's a cavalry model or a solo model, you would be dealing with that entire model itself and not just the wounds. So that's something that matters when it comes up. Mm -hmm. Move. Whenever a unit's tray is physically repositioned by a rule, that unit is moving. This includes pivoting. So the example I was talking to Luke prior to the show, uh, you have a card, Daenerys Targaryen. If an enemy ends a move within short range of Daenerys' unit, the dragons are allowed to make, I think, a free maneuver or a march. And the question was, is a shift counted as a move for this purpose? And it absolutely is. So uh, it's, I, I think it's very clear what is a move and you're physically repositioned by a rule um, and it even says that it includes pivoting so something important to keep in mind yeah easy easy definition but sometimes there's some <laughs> some funny circumstances that can make you question whether something is a move or not but uh, just remember that the rule is intended to be simple and it's you know a very simple explanation if the tray is physically repositioned to move 
When a unit pivots, it is rotated around its center to any facing, ignoring other units' trays, both friendly and enemy, as long as it does not end overlapping. There's a whole other section on that. But essentially, the, the cool thing about this game is you don't have something that's like a wheel or a reform that takes extra, extra steps like you had in Warhammer Fantasy. Um, you can freely pivot a unit 360 degrees when you're making a maneuver. Um, it's just very simple. The issues that come with pivoting, um, there are second party or third party, I should say, um, pivoting arcs that really help you understand what a pivot is. When you're doing a pivot, it, it can be really important in, you know, throughout gameplay to make sure that you're truly pivoting on the center and not gaining inches when you pivot. It's important for measuring charge distance. It's important for maneuvering. It's important for picking up tokens. It's of all of the rules that we've covered so far, this is one that I really suggest that you get very good at. Um, I, I like to think that this game is not the type of game where you have a lot of arguments, but there can be moments where it's super important to do a very precise pivot because if it's a matter of millimeters, whether you can completely cover a token or not, um, it's very important that you do a proper pivot to, to do your opponent justice. Um, and again, they have those pivoting arcs. They have special contraptions that go to the bottom of your tray that just allow you to free spin that unit on the center. It's just really important to get into the habit of, even if you practice with an empty tray, holding the center with your finger and then spinning it on your finger. Just making sure that you don't gain any inches when you pivot because it is super important. And of all the rules in the game, pivoting is the one that I see broken more than any other rule. Uh, people just do improper pivots. Um, I play on TTS a lot in TTS. Excuse me. On Tabletop Simulator, it's impossible to pivot poorly because the video simulator does it for you. But by, from playing on TTS, I can look at things on the table and know for a 100% fact, like, okay, if you retreat, I can tell just by looking where that token is, you're not going to be able to pivot onto that token. And sometimes it's a point of contention with players that aren't used to such precise pivots and they think that they can pivot on it but honestly once you practice really good pivots you'll understand what i'm talking about there yeah and one tip i can offer is that if you feel like you're kind of uncomfortable making your pivots you just think that there's no way you're going to be able to get them you know perfect either you know shake hands i mean you know, we all get nervous and stuff when we're playing, especially in tournaments um one of the things you can do is put something down like a dice or a card at the corner of the tray, uh, just to mark where it is. And then when you go to pivot, gently lift up the tray and, and make your pivot. And if there's a question of whether or not your pivot was, you know, maybe slightly off or, or maybe, you know, you, you just got off track and you didn't quite end it down on the center, uh, you can kind of reset, right? Uh, so doing it before you even pick up your tray, marking where your unit was just with something small, uh, that can help you to reset, redo, uh, especially if you want to see, you know, maybe where we'll end up after this. Nope, I don't want that to move back to where I was. Um, and, and you can explain this to your opponent that, you know, what your intention is, but that's something I started doing more recently in the last year, um, just to not only help myself, but also to assure my opponent that, hey, if you have any issues with my pivot, uh, I don't mind resetting and we can take a better look at it. Yep. It's definitely, you always want to talk to your opponents before the game. And if you, if you struggle a little bit with pivoting, you know, 
a lot of the times you can get your opponent to say, okay, well, we're going to do the best that I can. Uh, just, you know, like you said, make sure that you mark the spot. And if something's really important, I would prefer for you to use a pivot arc. Just always with war games, you want to avoid arguments wherever possible. So just trying to touch base with your opponent and be cool beforehand, you can avoid a lot of those things. But it's definitely, it's something that's very important. And it's not just going to be the super competitive and I guess, quote unquote, gamey guys that are going to take issue with it. It just, it really matters. Pivots are so important. Um, a sloppy, bad pivot can make a charge that should truly be a four. You know, you can end up making it a two and you're not doing yourself or your opponent really any favors, even if they let that slide because the next opponent might not. So it's just really important to, to get those pivots down the best that you can. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the game round, it's played over a number of rounds. Each, each round is composed by a number of turns. Um, so I know in Warhammer, it was called one player's turn, one player's turn. Um, and a, a turn was essentially what would, we would call a round. A round is once everyone has taken all of their turns, done all of their activations, then the round ends. So I've come, I've come to terms with the, the term round. I, I, I actually quite like it. Yeah, I do too. I like that they differentiate it from turn. Shift. When a unit shifts and is moved up to the distance listed, like shift two inches directly forward, backwards, or sideways, even in the definition of shift, it tells you that it's a move. So uh, yeah. just to be clear with that. So a shift is sideways, forwards, or backwards. You can never shift diagonally. So you don't pivot before you shift. You don't do anything. You literally just slide on that spot to the left, to the right, up, or down. Yep. And, and Brett, can you shift out of combat if you're engaged? You may not shift out of combat. That's in the FAQ. Yep. <laughs> and the FAQ almost demands its own show because there's, there's so much in that FAQ. Um, so I will point out that if you download the War Council app or go to the CMON site, there's an FAQ as well. You will definitely want to take a look at the FAQ. I see so many questions asked and even some debates happening and the answer's right there in the FAQ. So you'll want to check your FAQ. Um, target. This refers to the chosen recipient of an ability or effect. This one is the hardest. As far as rules go, this one is the hardest, and sometimes it trips me up as well. I'm going to try to get my hands on this because there was a very kind gentleman. Um, I think it was Dewan, right? Dewan Ring mm-hmm. made a flow chart for whether something is targeting or not and it's a very helpful chart to date it's about the most accurate thing that i've ever seen and it seems to be pretty universally accepted as the best way to determine if it's targeting uh to make this the simplest way possible what i can say is that an order always targets the unit that's using the order no matter what outside of that it needs to kind of specifically say that it's targeting an enemy and you need to ask yourself is this an effect that just happens or am I choosing who it happens to? One example that I'll use is martial training. Martial training targets the unit that has martial training. They get rerolls. And then as an effect of martial training, the defender becomes vulnerable. You're not targeting the defender for the vulnerable token in that instance. It's something that just happens. Okay. So this is, this is something we could almost spend a whole podcast on just talking about targeting. Right. But <laughs> Just the best that I can do is you need to pay very close attention to the chosen recipient because even though some effects do stuff to somebody else, 
you're not necessarily targeting them because those are things that just happen as a result. Yep, and, and likewise with the tactics card, um, the tactics card has trigger language at the top of the card. It's, it's in italics, and if it calls out a unit, either a defender or an attacker, in the trigger of the tactics card, that unit is being targeted as well as any unit listed in the description that might specifically target it. An example would be Warcry as a tactics card. Uh, it targets one of your own friend units, and then you perform a morale test, and then you target an enemy unit. So there are two targets for that card, the unit, the friendly unit that's doing the morale test, and the enemy unit that's going to be targeted by the spec. Yep. For the most part, that, that sounds about right. It gets a little bit confusing with something like Final Strike. Um, I would have to actually pull up the card for Final Strike to get the exact wording, but Final Strike actually ends up only targeting the attacker. It mentions the however many wounds the defender suffered, but it actually never targets the defender. It only targets the attacker. So, mm -hmm. again, it, it, it would almost yeah. take its whole section. We don't want to spend too much time getting into targeting. I'm going to get my hands on that flowchart, and we'll post it to the small Small Council Radio Facebook page for you to take a look at. But unfortunately, as as well as I think these rules are written and as clear as I think they are, targeting is definitely one that's just going to be – it's going to be hard for newer players. It's hard for veteran players. So it just be aware of that. Yes. Okay, so the terrain is the stuff that you place – at the start of the round, you know, your weird trees, your corpse piles, whatever they are, that's the terrain pieces. Um, condition tokens, it says tokens um, because it's not just condition tokens, but, uh, and I'm sorry, there's a train outside. You might hear it honking a little bit. <laughs> tokens are used to track various conditions and effects both on units and the battlefield. Tokens do not physically affect the battlefield in any way unless specifically noted otherwise. So you've got condition tokens, you've got order tokens, you've got activation tokens, you've got um, probably other tokens that I don't know about, but it's just pointing out that the, the tokens don't, like, they don't really interact with the game outside of what the token says that it does. Yep, nothing really to add there. A turn, a player's turn describes when they are performing a unit, unit's activation. Rounds are composed of various player turns. There's a little bit more into this later into the rulebook, um, but basically, your turn is in the alternating activations thing. You're really alternating turns, not so much activations. It's a dangerous thing to say alternating activations because we'll get to this, but if your opponent out-activates you and he has, say, two or three turns in a row where you don't have a unit to activate, you still have a turn to do start-of-turn effects. So that's something that's important to remember. Yes. Yeah. Unengaged, really self-explanatory. Don't even need to go into that one. And then wounds. Wounds represent the overall health. In, in most cases, when a unit suffers one wound, one model is removed from the unit for each wound suffered. Some effects say to deal a unit a number of wounds. Wounds do not allow defense saves. They are automatic damage to the unit. So any, you know, when you get to cavalry and solos, they have more than one wound per model. But... In general, if an effect causes an automatic wound, there's essentially nothing that you can do about it. As far as I know, nothing in this game anymore prevents auto wounds. I think the only thing that ever did before was Joffrey's tactics card, and that's been done away with. So 
at this juncture, nothing just straight blocks wounds. I think – oh, blocks wounds? Or yeah, I don't think anything – I don't think anything – yeah, I don't think anything reduces the number of wounds either. Uh, you know, you've got limitations on panic wounds, but if you've got a, something like Gregor's attachment that does two automatic wounds, I don't think there's anything in the game that can reduce that. The Giants no. don't reduce it, Blind Baron, nothing. So in terms of wounds, it's just automatic damage. If you're playing an inventory tray with 12 models, you will remove two models if it says that you suffer two automatic wounds. Yep, Anything else you want to touch on there? No, no. I, I, the only thing I'll touch on is to say it's great that this is only one page. All the terms, the major terms in the game, uh, right here on one page, and a lot of them, I would say more than half, are self-explanatory. You know, there's a couple that are a little complex, like targeting, um, but overall the terms of this game are very simple. I agree, and it's it's definitely a positive. It's reducing some of that bloat that we kind of alluded to earlier. It's it's something that can really make a game a bit more intimidating. And as we mentioned, the less rules that there are in a game, the less rules there are to, I'll say exploit. I don't know that that's necessarily a fair word because it implies that someone's not necessarily cheating but trying to get over on you. But um, that's just something that happens at high level. Um, once you've played the game, you're looking for every little nuance that you can find to give you an advantage, and that's that's not really anything wrong. It's just good for this game to give you less opportunities to do that. I totally agree. So now we move on to page six, where we're talking about the game round. Each game is played over a series of rounds, which are broken up into two phases, the activation and the cleanup. So in the activation phase, it's... Um, Basically breaking down what we talked about. You take turns, the first player goes first, and then you alternate until everyone's done. So start of turn. Sometimes players will have effects that trigger at the start of a turn. These effects are resolved before anything else on a player's turn. So you want to be very careful. Um, generally, in the first going, you'll, you'll get some leniency with kind of take back these, depending on who your opponent is, even as you develop your skills and get into more competitive games. It can be simple to, to skip a start of turn trigger. If it doesn't change gameplay, most people will let you go back and do it. But you've got tactics cards, orders, and various things that happen at the start of a certain turn. You need to declare those before you go into doing any activations. Yeah, and I'm just been keeping an eye out, too. Though. I think I, the one thing I don't see on here is the start of round, um, which is kind of implied at the beginning of the game round, you'll go into start of turn. But before even the first player takes their first turn, there is an opportunity to play a start of round triggers, which all I can think of is a couple tactic cards that you can play at the start of a round. Yeah, you've got, um, I think it's Karstark and Vargo have a similar card that lets you do a, a, an attack at the start of a round. And then I mm-hmm. think sand diplomacy happens at the start of a round, right? There you go. That's it. I think Dario, maybe the Targaryen version of Dario, replaces a card with yep. pretty yep. the same Fargo card, but, but yep. Yep, just something to keep in mind. Yep, and there's like the Cold Hands redeployment as well. That's at the start of the round. So. We think the more we'll come up with them. <laughs> <laughs> so just a couple of things to keep in mind. That is a good point. The start of the round is not the same as the start of first turn. It's not simultaneous with the start of turn. start of round is, is its own very separate. Okay, so the next thing that happens is the unit activates. 
you select either a combat unit or an NCU to activate. And when you activate them, they do something. Uh, I think we get into that a little bit later, but that's the next thing that happens. You resolve one action, which is available to you. It tells you where it explains what your actions are. You resolve your action. Uh, sometimes you have triggers that happen when a unit activates. You'll need to play those. Those are separate from start of turn. Um, and then you have the end of the turn. Once every bit of that's completed, you'll have one final opportunity to play cards or trigger abilities that may happen after a movement or something like that that falls within that turn, and then that turn's over. Yep, and it just keeps going back and forth between both players alternating following these steps, you know, one after another until all units have been activated. Yep, and that's that's kind of a nested thing that it, it tells you there without saying in so many words. You're always passing turns back and forth. Even if you don't have a unit to activate, that turn still gets passed to you. So you have the opportunity to do something on that turn, even if it's not, you know, making an action. You still have that start of turn. Yeah, so if you have any start of turn triggers you might want to play, although you have no combat units or NCUs to activate, you can still play or use start of turn um, orders or tactic cards. Yep. And then it just kind of touches on there. You can't voluntarily pass. Like, there's no pass tokens in this game. If if you can see that your opponent out-activates you and you don't want him to have turns at the end to set plays up that you can't respond to, you can't say, okay, well, I'm just going to take my turn and do nothing. If you have units left to activate, you have to select a unit to activate. You don't have a choice. And you do this back and forth until both players um, are out <clears throat> of things to do, and then it ends. And that's the end of the round, and then you move into the cleanup phase. So... It is important to note, let me think. You take turns. So if you're first player and you do your final activation and your opponent still doesn't have a unit to activate, he still gets a start of turn because you were first player, so it'll end on his turn, right? If you follow what I'm saying. Like, I'm first player, I have 10 activations you have only seven. So on my 10th turn, I do my final uh, activation. It doesn't end right there. You would still get your one last start of turn to trigger something, right? Actually, I believe it does end right there. So I believe that the, the end step and the cleanup phase begins as soon as uh, yep. all units have been activated with that last sentence right there, right before the cleanup phase. Yep, you're right. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing to point out to them. So, yeah, that, that can happen to you. So if you're waiting on an opportune moment to play like a, an Relentless. order to heal or something or something yeah. like that, yeah, you need to make sure that you get that popped out before they take their last activation and there's nothing left to activate because you're right, it would end right there. Mm-hmm. Okay, then we go into the cleanup phase. You resolve any effects that trigger at the end of the round. You score victory points when they're applicable in game modes. And it's, it's important to do these in order. Check to see if victory conditions have been met. Uh, remove activation tokens from units. Remove models from the tactics board. Remove influences. Then you discard tactics cards. They will draw up to the three. Um, if you've got something that allows you to draw higher, you can go higher. Here's where it tells you that you're limited to five cards in your hand at any time. 
If you should ever draw up a card that puts them above the maximum hand size, you must immediately get discard down to the maximum hand size. So there's an objective that allows you to increase your hand size by one, and then you've got like bookkeeper as an ability, and then there's Samwell NCU and Tyrion NCU, all that lets you have um, an additional card in your hand. So that means that you'll draw up to four, and you can have up to six. Uh, tactics cards are not replenished if they're used up. If a player should ever attempt to draw cards from their deck, but their deck does not contain enough cards, they only get to draw however many they can. So the important thing to note here is that drawing cards actually happens at the end of a round and not the beginning of the round. That's kind of a slip up and a mistake that I've seen people make. It actually came up because of patch face in my last game. And, and uh, Michael and I are both very experienced and we had to come back and reference this because I forced him to dump a card with patch faces start of the round. And he was curious if he was able to, you know, choose if he could draw a card because I was the active player, so I had to use patch face. He was wondering if it was irrelevant because it happens at the end of the round. So that's just something to keep in mind. Yeah, and if you're a new player, it's good to, to get good habits developed early on. You know, a lot of a lot of experienced players, maybe they, you know, between the end of the round when they would draw their cards and the beginning of the next round, there, there you know, used to be nothing in the game that would happen. Uh, and so, it's, you know, it, it was lost on me, honestly. I would have had to look this up, too. Uh, but if you're a new player and you're listening, create good hats and just know that, you know, you fill up your tactics cards and you discard before the next round begins. Okay. Uh, I will say real quick, sorry, Brett, sure. <laughs> before we move on, so I get this, I get this a lot by new players on the, on the cleanup phase uh, in their first or second games. Uh, they ask if condition tokens get cleaned up in the cleanup phase. Um, and the answer is no. So condition tokens like a vulnerable, a weakened, and a panic token, which we'll get in later, but those are not cleaned up in the cleanup phase. Those last uh, for rounds and rounds until they're either removed by an ability or they're spent by a player. Yep. And actually, I'm going to take a step back and look at this because this is something that's kind of important and it's a little bit buried in here and it might not immediately be obvious. So the reason that they're listed in a specific order and you have to follow that order to a T is I'm going to use Blind Baron as an example. Blind Baron's influence halves the number of hits that you take that are converted into wounds. The reason that it matters that you score victory points and resolve those effects before removing influences is because in a scenario like Honed and Ready, where you're taking hits from the wall, if Blind Baron was influencing the unit that's on a wall, he's still influencing the unit when they take those hits from the wall because he's not removed until after points are scored. Yeah, that's true. That's, and see, that's a, that's a great example of something that you know, may not come up in every game, but it's, it's nice to have these listed in an order uh, and to resolve them in exactly this order, as, as opposed to them just all being in a paragraph together in no yep. particular order. Yep. This and stops a lot of arguments right here. Yep, and I think this that's why I think this show could be for some of the veteran players as well, because these are things that maybe they didn't catch, they didn't realize, questions that they've had, and just taking this deep dive, you see some things come up, and we can list some examples to help you guys out. And then additionally, here's the part where you and I alluded to earlier about first player always alternating. This is the section of the rule book that verifies that. You always pass the first player token to your opponent. So nowhere does it say that your first player round one, so you got one, three, five, they get two, four, six. It's not locked like that. You always pass the first player token. 
And that was smart, actually, for them to word that because it avoided a situation where a, pl- a player could become first player three turns in a row. So they were they were pretty smart to throw that in there. Yeah, a lot of foresight uh, in these rules. Excuse me, sorry, thirsty. Now we're moving on to unit types. Um, there are two types of units. You've got combat units and non-combat units, each with their own special rules. So going into combat units, these are essentially they're representing a number of troops. So it's not 12 on 12. I think it's supposed to be like a unit represents hundreds of troops. Um, and then you've got the symbols for each. Now, this is important because there are certain triggers, certain cards, certain effects that only affect a certain type. Like you'll see a lot of things that only work on infantry. Um, and then the, you'll note that there's actually no, in these symbols, you've got infantry, cavalry, monster, and war machine. You'll note that there isn't a solo. Like there's not a special solo. That's mm-hmm. because solo models are denoted as either a monster, an infantry, a cavalry, or a war machine. So I've heard some people asking, well, like what, what about a solo? What does solo count as? It's going to give you this symbol on that solo's mod, on that solo's card, and it's going to indicate what type of unit it is. Yep, completely agree. Okay. Then infantry units are 12 models. When you, when you add an infantry unit to your army, you gain one full tray of the listed models. Models belonging to different units are never mixed together. So essentially you select one of your infantry units from your list. It's 12 models. Um, that, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. We don't really need to go into that. There are now two infantry units that specifically state that they're not 12 models. They are eight models. The Rainbow Guard and the King's Guard are both eight model units. Yeah, unless they did otherwise, assume 12 models. Yep. So cavalry units, the same. They're four models. We'll get into the cavalry rules because it's not four wounds, it's 12. Uh, 16 for the bear riders. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, models belonging dif- to different units are never mixed together. Again, it's just like you're not able to bring half champions of the stag and half late men. It's just really self-explanatory, <laughs> but they're breaking that down for you. In addition to the two trays listed above, various other types of units ranging from single warriors, monsters, or large war machines may take use of special trays known as small solo trays and large solo trays, as they are usually comprised of a single model. So it's just letting you know there that it's using a solo tray, but there is no technical like solo. There's, as far as I know, there's not any rule that says uh, target a solo model. It's always infantry, monster, war machine, or something like that. Yep. So all trays share the same feature. They all have the front arrow. That is used to denote which way you're facing, but it's also used to measure for range attacks, which we'll get into later. Um, Individual models represent the overall health of a unit and are usually removed as the unit suffers damage. Usually, one model represents one wound. Some abilities and special rules, however, might modify this. That's in the wound section. When the last wound is lost from a unit, it is destroyed and removed from the battlefield. So that's important to note because sometimes the question can be asked, well, you know, at what point is the unit considered destroyed? And it's when the final model is removed. Anything that you want to add on to that? I feel like there might be something in this section that I'm just kind of glancing over right now. Yeah, no, no, no. You you look back at it. I'll continue on. Um, so the line of sight arcs, um, those are the guides you determine what, what the unit can see. And you, there are those small lines on the corners of the tray. And 
anything that is in the front arc is between where the, you've got the front facing of the tray where the arrow is. That's where they're facing forward. And then the lines on the edges of the tray, either the right or left, anything that you can draw a line of sight to within that entire front arc is what your unit can see. It's in line of sight. And each side of the tray is denoted by the line of sight arc on the corners of the tray, um, represent the front, the two sides of the flanks, and the back of the tray where the arrow is not is the rear. So uh, if you get into modeling and, and adding basing onto your tray, uh, one thing to consider is not covering up where the arrow and the line of sight arcs are on the tray um, because those are very, very important pieces of information used in the game. The only thing I'll cover in this model section that's coming to mind is the interaction with last stand. Now, this is as I understand it, and I could be wrong. I don't believe it's in the FAQ, which shame on me for not knowing, but I don't think it's in the FAQ. But interestingly, if you have, if you have one combat unit left, your opponent has one combat unit left. They attack you. They wipe you. You play last stand, and you wipe them. Last stand specifically states that they make that attack before they're removed. If you destroy your enemy with that attack, even though they kind of tabled you, you tabled them first. So I think in the case of Last Stand, which it, it does occasionally come up, the person who plays Last Stand is actually the winner because you resolve the effect in its entirety, and that would be removing the enemy's combat unit from play before yours is removed, so you were the last person on the table. Is that how you understand it? I know you play Great John. Yeah, that, and that is how I understand it. Because it's almost like putting a pause on removing models uh, <laughs> to to interrupt that process with an attack. And if that attack doesn't happen to uh, take out the uh, the enemy unit, uh, your damage has been applied <laughs> to your unit that's attacking, um, and technically you're the last one to die. It's crazy, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, many effects will reference the unit's remaining ranks. A rank is only lost on the very last model, and it is removed, which means that even if one model remains in a rank, you get the full benefits. This was something that was a little bit hard to digest. Um, now, I, I mean, I think the rule is clear, but it, it's just a weird thing when you see this. When you see your tray and it has five guys left, like an infantry tray, you feel like you're closer to being dead than being alive. But mm -hmm. according to the rules, you're more alive than dead. And, and it's an interesting thing that you, as, as you kind of get into it, um, the cool thing about A Song of Ice and Fire is for the most part, units are good to the last drop. Like, there's a number of times where there's like a unit's tray running around with, you know, even two or three models and they're just wreaking havoc. Um, I think it's a very cool thing about this game because in Warhammer, you know, unless it was a super kitted out hero, if you were had an infantry trade down to like two guys, it was basically useless. Like you're not going to get any good out of that unit. That's not the case in A Song of Ice and Fire. They are potent until they're completely removed. And in the case of things like Berserkers and Cave Dweller Savages, they're actually more deadly when they're down. So just something to keep in mind. But as it says, even one model in there, it counts at the full rank. Yeah, and that was something that I don't think I mentioned either, was that, you know, the ranks are denoted by the rows 
on the tray. Um, so an infantry tray has three ranks, cavalry tray has two ranks, and then solo tray is always one rank. Yep. Then it just gives you some drawings to give you some examples. That's pretty self-explanatory. Um, I'm going to try to speed this up. No, no pun intended. Uh, no, speed. let's go. Up in the top left corner, it represents how far they move across the battlefield. The speed, the number next to the speed is how many inches that unit moves. Um, as we get into maneuvers and marches, you'll see that sometimes it's doubled or something like that. But the speed is very, very different from, um, like, the, uh, the amount that you can shift. So something has to specifically say that it affects your speed for it to change how much you can, how much you can shift, uh, how much that unit can move. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> As you mentioned, one one arrow means short range, two arrows means long range, short range six, long range is 12. Uh, morale is represented by the flag. Um, in this game, your morale test, you want to roll above your morale. It's an interesting thing about this game because as far as I know, there's, n there's really not a point in this game where you don't want to roll high. I think rolling high is always to your benefit. I know in Warhammer, you wanted to roll low on your leadership tests. That's not the case in this game, as far as no. I can think of, unless you, like in the case of um, Spiteful Truce, where you might actually want to fail a, a morale test so that your opponent can't heal, every other time I can think of, you want to roll high. Yeah, the only thing I can think of where you want to roll low is when you're taking a panic test and you're rolling the D3 for how much damage you take on yep. your own test if you fail it. Uh, yep. But I know you're right that for the most part, uh, high rolls in this game indicate good rolls for you. Yep. So then you move on to the defense stat. It's a shield. It represents how you roll your defense saves, which is covered later. Um, then you've got the unit type that's listed on that card. Again, it's important, um, especially with those solos, because it's going to indicate what type of unit it is. Some of those cards are very unit-specific. Uh, the unit name and affiliation, uh, it's, there's more of that on the next page. Um, the house emblem just shows what uh, faction it belongs to. And then abilities. Now, this one's kind of important. So, uh, Luke, we may be doing two shows to cover this rule book. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Part one. Units, have, units may have one or more abilities. Each ability is unique and lists its full rules. Sometimes an ability will have a symbol next to its box. This acts as a visual reminder for when the ability is used. Some examples are melee and ranged. You've got the bow symbol for a ranged and the melee for, or the sword for a melee attack. It's tied to melee or ranged. Some abilities only work on ranged. Some only work on melee. And you have mo every unit now has a melee and a ranged profile. But take for example the crossbows. They have sundering, but only with their crossbow ranged attack. Their melee attacks don't have sundering. The pyromancers have wildfire for both. So it's going to be important to take note of the symbols next to them to see specifically what those abilities are, are affecting. The other thing to keep in mind with those abilities is if this unit has a, a way to do automatic hits, um, those automatic hits do not get the keywords from these attack symbols. So just because their melee attacks may say sundering, uh, they have another ability like hold the line that allows them to do automatic hits on an enemy, uh, it, those hits do not benefit from the soldering keyword. Correct. And the only instance where that's different is if, it's, if those automatic hits are tied to an attack. For, an ex for example, 
I think um, Wrath of the Warrior, if you, I'll just use that as one example. I'm sure there's more, but it gives you, if you fail the morale test, you actually do one additional hit. Now that is tied to a melee attack. Therefore, if it's a pyromancer, making a melee attack that gives him additional hit tied to that melee attack, then he gets the wildfire ability. But for hold the line or something like that, it does not have wildfire. So that can be a little bit confusing, but you just need to think about, am I making an attack? Does this benefit give me additional hits to that attack? And if it does give additional hits to that attack, then it gains those keywords. So for example, another one would be, um, Free Folk Chariot with Deadly Free Folk, Impact. Yep. Free Folk Chariot with Deadly Impact. And there's a neutral card. Uh, I'm so terrible. It used to be Wealth and Cunning. It's um, called something else now. But it gives you plus one hit and then plus two hits if you're the commander or you control the letters and you can get up to plus three. So it would give like the builder, the, the Golden Company crossbows three additional sundering hits. So something to keep in mind there. Um, you'll just have to ask yourself as you get along, is this part of an attack? If it's not, you don't gain those abilities. If it is, you do gain them. Orders are a special type of ability that can be used once per round. There's a whole section on orders. Uh, the important thing here is innate abilities cannot be canceled or removed by abilities or effects. So, yeah, you can't even, basically, you can't do anything to an innate ability. If you play Subjugation of Power, remove all abilities, you can't touch any of those abilities that are have the heart and they're counted as innate. The other thing I'll add to this ability section while we're talking about it, there are effects like Stannis' Harsh Condition that removes one ability that you choose for each condition token. The question always comes up, if I remove an ability from Pyromancers, am I removing each bullet point? Or if I blank wildfire, does it take all of that away? And the answer is the ability is wildfire. That's the ability. If you blank wildfire, you blank everything that comes with wildfire. Horrific visage is in its own separate box. That's a separate ability. So you might want to blank horrific visage. That would just blank horrific visage. But if you blank wildfire, you don't have to blank each individual bullet point. You're wiping the whole ability out. Yeah, and the easiest way to summarize that is one text box equals ability. Yep. Yeah, because the interesting thing when you're looking at this game, I know from playing different war games, you want to say, like, pyromancers have seven attacks, seven attacks, four attacks. It's While the message is being conveyed and probably received by your opponent, that's actually not correct. Pyromancers have one attack. Their attack is wildfire. That's the name of the attack. That Those boxes indicate how many attack dice they roll. So if you break it down like that and you're looking at it that way, it can make it a little bit more simple for you to understand some of those niche terms because you're not making seven attacks, you're just making one attack, and that attack is wildfire. As far as I know, every unit's attack has a name. The, the name may be short sword, but that's the attack. Now, the one thing I'll ask that might confuse a new player is if somebody blanks my abilities and let's say that they uh, decide to block wildfire, does that mean I can no longer make attacks since both of my attacks are titled wildfire? Or does this mean my attacks have no special abilities? It means that they, it has no special abilities. The attack is still and always will be named wildfire. It will just lose any of the bullet-pointed things that it has. 
All right. Three. Next point value is on the back of the card. You're playing however many points you and your opponent decide. You subtract the point value of the unit from the total that you can use, and you go from there. But that's where you find the points is on the back. Also, on the back of these cards, you might find some special rules, like as far as characters go, you know, named characters. It'll tell you that this is a character. It will tell you if that unit has a limit. It'll tell you if you have to include something else to bring this unit. All of that's on the back of the card, along with the flavor text. Yeah, and some of the abilities that I can think of that are on the back of the cards would be like uh, adaptive for free folk writers, which reduces the cost of an attachment. And it's not, it's not on the front of the card, it's actually on the back. Yep. And then you get into unit name and affiliation. Sometimes the unit's name is going to specifically name a house affiliation. House Clegane's Mountains Men. House Clegane Brigands. House Umber Great Axes and Berserkers. That gives you that affiliation for those special cards and abilities because it, you're named that in your unit name. And then you've got the background, which is just a little bit of a flavor text. Yep, nothing else to add there. Okay, so then attachments, they're just individuals given to a unit. Um, you Here's the rules for the attachments. You add them as part of army creation. You can purchase a unit attachment and put it in a combat unit. Once it's done, you add it to that unit. It's considered as part of that unit for all purposes. Unless an effect specifically says so, attachments cannot be singled out of their unit for any reason. So something that could single them out would be Expert Duelist. Um, you used to have Paid Mutiny that just blanked the attachment. That's gone from the game, done and over with. Um, so far as I know, only like Expert Duelist and Prisoner Jockin will target enemy attachments. Mm-hmm. Um, solo units can never have attachments. So this is a question that's come up with uh, Maimed Jamie. Can I attach Maimed Jamie to a unit of freedmen? They are infantry. Well, at first glance, you would be able to, except for that this bullet point says that solo units can never have attachments. That includes, excuse me, that includes enemy attachments. You may only ever purchase one attachment for each unit. There are exceptions to that. They will specifically be listed. For example, the companion ability allows you to ignore the attachment restriction. You're going to see things that say ignore the usual attachment restriction, which is just that, that you can only have a one attachment for each unit. So something that allows you to override that is going to specifically tell you that it does override it. An attachment may only be added to a unit the same type as itself. So you can't put an infantry attachment in a cav unit or vice versa. When you adding the attachment models to the unit, it always replaces one of the basic models in that unit and always replaces the left frontmost model in the front rank of that unit and they're always the last model to be destroyed. In some situations, a unit could have multiple attachments. In the case of two plus attachments in a single unit, the second leftmost model of the rank is replaced for the second attachment and so forth. The order is decided by the combat unit's owner. Now that can be somewhat important because um, with Rickon and Asha, most often, since Asha is the one that brings the strong abilities to the unit, you'll want to put Asha as the last model to be destroyed. That way, if there's only one model left, it's Asha, so you'll have Stubborn Tenacity and Counter Strikes. If you put Rickon as the last model to be removed and you lose 11 models, then Asha's gone, and you won't have Counter Strikes. Yes, and another good point to bring up, you brought up uh, main Jamie. So sometimes your opponent will have attachments 
can be your unit. Uh, if you are the owner of that unit, you get to decide the order of attachment. So if you already had an attachment in your own unit and then your opponent puts an attachment in that unit, you get to decide the order so you can have theirs be, you know, the first to die and leave you as the last model standing. Yep, which can be beneficial because Mame Jamie debuffs the unit. Doing that, you might you risk giving them the victory point, so you'll have to weigh you'll have to weigh the decision because if you put Jamie as the second model and the unit survives with one point, you gave them the extra VP for Jamie. As far as I know, Jamie's not unit destroyed, right? It's just when Jamie is destroyed. Yeah, I, I believe you're right. I think it is just when Jamie's destroyed. Okay, so it's something to consider when you're putting them in that order, and that's that's a decision you'll have to weigh and decide at that time. So then you've just got the attachments unit name, and then give affiliation in the case of a commander, um, and then it's got its abilities listed on there. Uh, and then it says they count as the combat unit for all gameplay purposes, so if a combat unit ever loses its abilities, all abilities are also lost from the attachment. That kind of goes back to way back when, when we had things that singled out attachments to lose abilities. Now it's just very clear, uh, much, much better. You only ever blank. If you blank the unit, you blank everything attachment included. Yeah, because there were things that blanked units but not attachments and things that blanked attachments but not the units. And it was really confusing. I'm glad they cleaned that up. Um, and then on the back of that card, it also has uh, the point value similar to the combat units, and then it shows what type of unit they can join. Moving on, if you don't have anything else to add. Yeah, actually, I, I, I was looking to see if it was mentioned, and, and it's kind of common sense, but I'll just state if, if the attachment is removed by any kind of special rule that would, that would remove or kill the attachment and the unit still survives, the unit loses the attachment's abilities. Yep, and I think that one's actually in the FAQ, which I thought this was going to be a lot faster than what it was. <laughs> no we've gone through like five pages, so we might have to do a couple shows just for the rule book, and then it might even take a show or two for the FAQ as well. Yeah. Okay, non-combat units, those are your NCUs. That's most commonly what they're referred to as. Um, this just kind of gives you a flavor text for what they're doing. Uh, again, just like the other stuff, you've got the name of the unit, you've got an NCU icon that shows that it is a non-combat unit, then you've got the abilities listed, points values on the back. Yep. Line of sight. A unit's line of sight determines what it can and cannot see. This is important for a number of reasons, but mostly used to determine where it can target when making attacks, as well as where it will contact an enemy when charging. On each unit's tray, there are notches used to denote it's line of sight arc. Each unit has four line of sight arcs, front, rear, and two flanks. Okay. So in this picture, now this is something that, that came up way back when when I was playing. It's actually interesting. If you measure from that little slot that denotes the line of sight to the center of the tray, you will get a different angle than if you pass like a laser straight through as they're showing in this picture. You see in this picture, it's a straight line connecting those two points. Mm -hmm. those angles actually end up being different than if you measure to the center of the unit. And it's kind of like, I, when I was first going, I measured from line to line. Like I, I took the ruler, removed the models, and connected those two lines, and that was the line of sight. I was told that that's not accurate because cavalry trays are a little bit wider, Right. So it actually gives you like a wider line of sight. Do you actually know the answer on how you're supposed to measure that? 
No, I do not. So, and of course, I use a uh, I use a laser pointer uh, that puts a, a line on the table. But um, without that, what I would do is I would use tape, either a tape measure or I would use a measure that comes with the starter box, um, and I would just make sure where there's a line on the corner of the tray. Um, I would make sure I'm lined up that line that I'm running parallel over the top of that line and mm-hmm. use that as the arc. I never even thought really to measure back uh, to the opposite side's corner and to draw yeah. a line that way because it, it might work for a slow tray because it's a square. But mm-hmm. I think for some of these rectangular uh, trays, and you know, I'm not the best at geometry or math, but um, mm-hmm. I would imagine you're right. You would get a, get a different angle. You wouldn't get the 90-degree angle from the corner. Yeah. You'd get, get something else. A war machine tray would be way less than 90, actually. And I think a cavalry tray, it's a little bit wider than 90. So mm-hmm. it's, just something, it's just something, you know, because we're talking to, you know, people just getting into the game. It, it's pretty important, actually. Um, even though it shows that in the rule book, I don't actually think that you're supposed to do that. I think the center of the tray, you're supposed to line up to the center of the tray with your ruler and then match that angle on the front the best that you can. And the one thing I would say about lining it to the center is for war machine trays, you might want to do something different um, because their front, because oh, they're right. a, you know, a more narrow yeah. front, they're not going to quite meet the, the center of the tray. Yeah, then I think you've just got to use the, I've, you've just got to use the arrow, line up the best that you can to that, um, to that notch and just communicate with your opponent and make everything as clear as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Agreed. To check to see what a unit can see, if an unbroken and unblocked line can be drawn from any point in their front arc from their tray to any part of the, their target's tray, you're in line of sight. Note that other units and some terrain pieces block line of sight. Now, that's, that's pretty important because when it comes to ranged attacks, which we'll get into in this section, there can be this really awkward situation where you only the tiniest little part of your tray sees them and they fall within your range, you can absolutely shoot them. There's no 50% rules in this game. There's no majorities, none of that. It's very straightforward. If you can, you draw that little red zone that they've made, and if you can take a ruler or a laser or anything and touch any part of that front arc within that red zone to their tray, you can see them. And that, that's yeah. the end of that. Yeah, you can see a tiny, tiny, any tiny part of the tray, uh, and, and you you get the full benefit. Yep. And then they sh- they give you these drawings that show examples. In this picture, we can see the umbers. Yay! And the next one, we can't. Sad. Um, <laughs> if you can't see them, it, it generally is not great for you. <laughs> no, and then no. uh, we're looking at the Lannister crossbowmen. They cannot see the Stark bowmen because they can't see through their uh, they can't see through the sworn, sworn swords and the berserkers. So they can't shoot them. You can't draw a line anywhere without contacting that tray. So the Stark Bowman cannot be shot by the crossbows. I'll what? plug real quick, sorry. I'll plug yeah. the uh, the laser pointer pin that I use real quick, and I know a lot of other uh, Song of Ice and Fire players uh, use this or a similar tool. The one I use, is it's made by Army Painter. It's the target lock laser line. Uh, it projects a line straight on the table, and I find uh, to be one of those useful tools uh, for checking line of sights and, and uh, flank, front, rear, uh, line of sight arcs for this game, and it's about $10. Yep, I completely 100% agree. 
uh, it's the exact same one I use as well. Very valuable tool. Mm-hmm. You can even take it home and help you hang pictures straight. <laughs> yeah, my kids play with mine all the time, and somehow it still isn't dead yet. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a great tool. It's a very nice investment. I agree with Luke. I strongly suggest buying one. Uh, it's just a small investment. You don't have to go all out and do all the crazy tokens and all that, but you definitely should should get one of those lasers. It makes mm-hmm. things very clear. It's hard to argue with a straight laser line. And the one thing I'll add on to it real quick so we can move on is that when you use it, just hold it straight above. Because if you do it at an angle, you will get uh, different results. Yep. What line of sight arc a unit is in is very important as it gains bonuses for attacking and charging in the flank and rear. If a unit ever crosses multiple line of sight arcs for another unit, they will be in the line of sight arc that the majority of their trait is in. This is always checked from the target unit's perspective. Now that is one where they do use a majority. Normally it's relatively clear because of that center air, that center in the tray. Um, there can be cases where it's not super clear, but it tells you what happens if it's exactly 50-50. Uh, for the most part, you can tell by using the models on the tray. Like You can count the number of models that are on one half of the line and determine it from there. In this picture, the, the berserkers are very clearly in the flank. It, and it's tray. It's all tray, right? Like the, the models, I, counting the models or counting where the spots where the models would be placed on the tray, like I find that useful as well. That's we do it. You know, we count, oh, you got six and a half over here, five and a half over there, so you're six and a half to the majority. But uh, just keep in mind that whether you've lost models or not, uh, that doesn't factor in. It's, it's purely the tray. Yep. And so... Um... A lot of times it's actually beneficial for you to remove some models to make things clearer. That's mm-hmm. something you can do. Uh, if you're in a time tournament or something, you avoid it if you can, but sometimes there are instances where it just has to happen. So um, Next we move on to actions. These are for combat units. Maneuver, march, retreat, attack, charge. Five actions, really simple. Um, alternately, a combat unit may choose to forego performing an action at all during its activation, though this is seldom beneficial. Once a unit has completed its action or forgoes its action, its activation ends. Place an activation token on the unit to mark this. So there is an FAQ section. It's an errata to the rule book. If you are engaged, you no longer have a choice. If you're engaged, you either have to retreat or attack. Um, I think it was a good rule that was added to the game. Uh, not just because I personally felt that it was a little bit boring, but I think it helps some of the effects that they designed to work the way that they're designed to work. Mm-hmm. Previously, you could be engaged and just say, well, I don't want to t- deal with Counter-Strike. I don't want to deal with Horrific Visage, but I also want the benefit of being in the spot that I'm in. I don't want to retreat, so I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. You can't do that anymore. Um, it's actually in the FAQ section. It's a rule called Idleness Means Death. You are now forced take one of those actions and it does bring implications with cards like predictable maneuvers um, but it is what it is I still believe overall it was a great change yeah, completely agree sometimes an effect will allow a unit to make a free action this action does not interfere with the unit's normal activation in any way and it may be taken even if the unit has already activated in the round we covered that kind of back in the other section but it is important to note that it is still an action because of cards like seeing their flaws if you take a maneuver off of the tactics board, even though it's not your activation, it was still an action. And so things like hidden traps or cards like that will still be able to trigger because you did do an action. Yes. 
I agree. Uh, so pivoting is a type of move that allows the unit to be rotated along its center to any facing, usually done as part of another movement effect. When pivoting, a unit ignores the other unit's trades, both friendly and enemy, as long as all movement, after all movement is completed, is not overlapping any other tray. Uh, there's that's, also the... Go ahead. What were you saying? No, go ahead. You go. Yeah, so, so actually, um, at the end of this uh, sentence, as long as after all movement has been completed, it's not overlapping any other tray. So... Uh, when we were first reading through those game terms and we read the pivot uh, game term, this actually just adds just a slight bit more detail to the pivot definition. I'll reread the one for the, the page five. So when a unit pivots, it's rotated around on its center to be facing, ignoring other units' trays, both friend and enemy, as long as they do not end overlapping. It almost makes it sound like as long as your pivot does not end overlapping. And this down here clarifies, right, that uh, you can pivot over a friendly or an enemy tray as long as after all movement has been completed, it's not overlapping any other tray. So you can pivot, end your pivot still on top of an enemy tray, and then move, so if you're performing a maneuver, uh, move and finish your, all your movement altogether, um, not overlapping their tray, which... I mean, it's a small detail, but it basically, to me, clarifies that you can you can end a pivot on top of an enemy tray, um, which I think was not clear on page five. Um, yeah, um, but I think the problem is you're not allowed to move through the enemy. Um, as far as that goes, you could end a pivot on them, but even if you were doing that to be able to charge, you can't move through the enemy. So I think it matters most for, um, like for the friendly. Yeah. So you can end, uh, you can pivot and be on top of a friendly unit and then declare a charge as long as at the end of the charge, you're not on top of the unit anymore. And I think there's more things in the rule book that, that specify that. But as far as ending on top of a, an enemy, the problem with that being, you would never be able to move through them unless it gave you permission to with a card like ride by attack, at which point you are allowed to. So it does matter for that because I've, I've heard some guys arguing that ride by attack, uh, he wanted to pivot and then stop his pivot over top of the unit so that he could clear them. And this argument came about and he was like, well, you can't do that because you're ending a pivot on me. And that is cleared up here. You can end that pivot on the enemy for um, ride by attack. Because once you're done doing your march that comes with that card, you're not on them anymore. So that is a case where it does matter. There you go. <laughs> All right. Um, so with this pivoting, it's very important. Since it is a part of a move in the next section, units may never end a move within one inches of an enemy, except when moving as part of a charge action, which obviously allows you to contact them. That's in a separate section. While moving, you may freely pass through but never end overlapping friendly units. So this comes up because you get wonky little positions that break the one-inch rule because of charges. So this actually happened in Mike Hellenize's game as well. He performed a retreat. At the end of his retreat, my queensmen were allowed to pivot. The problem was his iron breakers had charged a unit, and when he aligned, he was within an inch of my queensmen. So now my Queensmen were unable to change facing because any pivot that they made would have ended within an inch of the Iron Makers. Even though I'm allowed to make a pivot, it is a move, so I can't end that pivot within one inch. So basically, 
uh, intentionally or unintentionally. I think it was unintentional, but uh, Michael ended up kind of screwing my queensmen into that spot because they weren't able to pivot to face anything, and they weren't even able to change their facing to look at the archers, so the archers ended up in their flank. So that's a thing that can happen. You can set it up that way. Um, it's not necessarily always super easy, but that is a niche situation that can come up. You can't pivot and end within an inch of the enemy. All good yep. there? Mm-hmm. Neato, huh? This is a super deep dive. <laughs> yeah, I'm still I'm still looking for where it specifically says you can't move through an enemy. I'm sure it's in here. It's just it's not around here on this page. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll see if we come up with it, and maybe mm-hmm. I'll eat my hat and be wrong about that. Um, maneuver action allows a unit to reposition itself around the battlefield. Uh, a maneuver may not be performed while engaged, so that's something a newer player might not be clear on. Um, if you're engaged, you have to retreat. You can't maneuver while you're engaged. When it performs a maneuver, you may be pivoted to face any direction. You would then move it directly forward up to its speed stat. Once this is completed, you may then you may then again be pivoted to face any direction. So this is important because I had this habit up until I started playing TTS and I was corrected by players on TTS. I was into a habit of pivoting and measuring sideways and then pivoting again. That's actually illegal and it matters because you end up gaining just the tiniest little bit by sliding sideways. You have to actually pivot the direction you're going, move in a straight line and then pivot again you'll find that it's actually, I think it's maybe like a quarter of an inch you gain if you just shift sideways. So that, it seems annoying, and it seems like you're kind of uh, being super particular about that, but it really does matter. If you do it for yourself with a pivot arc, you'll see what I'm talking about. But you're not supposed to just shift sideways for a maneuver. You can go forward or backwards, but not sideways. Really? So, okay, so I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate because I'm just thinking of the math behind it. So if you pivot on your center 90 mm-hmm. degrees, you face the side, you mm-hmm. move two, two inches, and you pivot 90 degrees back, um, shouldn't your center have moved two inches? Uh, it's because the tray is not actually a square. So when you pivot all the way around, you're actually losing like a tiny little bit because the tray's not a square, if that makes sense. And so then you move two inches straight forward and then you pivot back as opposed to just sliding sideways. I think you lose a tiny little bit. I could pull up TTS and show you, but um, I'm nearly certain that because the tray is not an exact square, you can't just move sideways your full speed. Now, if if your speed is five, and you're only wanting to move sideways three inches, then, yeah, knock yourself out. But as far as moving the full distance, you actually lose a little bit from the pivot, if that makes sense, because their front, I think, is longer than the side. So when you turn that uh, 90 degrees, you're losing a tiny little bit from the center because that the side is not as wide as the front. That that might be the one thing I disagree on, but maybe I need to go and do some testing and figure that out because I almost think it's, I think it's one of the most beautiful things about maneuvering is how convenient it is to just slide. (laughs) (laughs) Slide slide your move speed, you know, sideways or forwards or just measure from your center to center. 
Um, but maybe maybe I need to go and get schooled on that. So I yeah, did find then, what I was looking for. Uh, so in the moving units text box, it says, while moving units may freely pass through, but never end overlapping friendly units. It doesn't explicitly say, at least not on this page, that you can't move through any units, but it's certainly not permissive, right? It's, it's only giving you permission to move and freely pass through friendly units. Mm-hmm. I could swear there's a section somewhere. I'll have to look I'm, for that. I'm sure it is, because <laughs> I've always played it that way, but uh, I feel like I'm learning stuff as we go through this, you know, just, well, just refreshing you know, my memory. <laughs> could, it could just be a, a mind-blowing situation where we mm. find out that you're allowed to pass through enemies. I could have well, sworn somewhere, it, it, I thought it like even said something like enemies are treated as impassable or something like that. It, um, and we we may get to it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we won't. <laughs> Maybe uh, I will end up checking the FAQ. Actually, we'll see if it's in the rulebook section, and then we'll go from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right; I don't see anything uh, forbidding you from doing it, but it certainly doesn't give you permission to do it. Um. All right. So we ended in the pivot to face any direction. I was going to pull it up on Tabletop Simulator to show you, but I think in the interest of keeping the show moving forward, just mark a spot, like take your unit sideways six inches, measure the six inches, mark it with a little spot, and then get a pivot arc, turn them, move them six inches, and see if you can end on that spot. And pivot back. Okay. Yep. Okay. March. March allows a unit to swiftly move across. March may not be performed while engaged, similar to a maneuver. You double the speed stat. Uh, you can't pivot before you march unless it gives you permission to do so. Like, uh, is it enhanced mobility? Gives you permission to pivot, then march. Um, you go up twice your speed. You don't have to pivot before. It says it right there. Once it's completed, you pivot. Pretty straightforward. Take the position mm-hmm. you're in now, double your speed, and pivot. Yeah, and this is all considered to be one move. Um, if anything reduces your move, your total move, it's only going to reduce it the entire move. So if you something removed, uh, something reduced your total move by one, uh, and you had a move speed of five, and you doubled it to ten, it would reduce you to nine. Um, mm-hmm. Unless something specifically affects your move stat, uh, it's it's not going to affect. Uh, the doubling, right? But if something that your move stat is reduced to two, um, then your march would only be four, if you can yep. still march. And that's kind of what I was alluding to earlier when we talked about the rulebook section uh, with the, the speed. It, it's very important to note that because something like hindering, is it hen- it's rough. Rough terrain will move the total distance, will reduce the total distance you would move by one. Uh, but it doesn't affect your speed. Mm-hmm. There are things that affect your speed, so that affects the march. So very good shout out there. There you go. Um, retreat. The retreat action allows an engaged unit to break away. Uh, you only perform retreats when you're engaged. You can't just call a retreat so that you move D6 plus your speed. Uh, when you perform a retreat, you roll a D6. You then move speed stat plus the result of the D6 backwards, sideways, or forward if they're, if they're in your rear or your flank in a straight line. This is the rare case where a tray can be moved sideways or backwards without changing its facing. Once this move is completed, the unit may then pivot to any facing. Additionally, if the enemy unit now engaged after the retreat, they can pivot. So with the retreat section, it's important to go back to the movement section because that's where you'll find out that you can fail a retreat because you can't get within an, 
you can't get out of with being within an inch of the enemy. Um, so sometimes you'll declare a retreat, and you, of course, this game you can pre-measure at any time. So you can measure where that tray is going to end up. Another important thing, I would suggest bringing blank trays to games if you have them, so that you can test stuff like this. But you can know beforehand, but you might end up needing like a four or a five or a six on your retreat to clear an enemy, and then you have to gauge whether it's worth it or not. And it, it, there's a section on it right here. Subject is, the retreat is subject to all normal movement rules, including not being able to move over or end a move overlapping an enemy unit's tray. This means there can be situations where a unit cannot legally perform a retreat, such as being surrounded from all sides, or there not being enough room for it to move and not end within an inch of an enemy. So right here it says, uh, subject to all normal movement rules, including not being able to move over or end a move overlapping. I never saw where it said you can't move over an enemy. Maybe it's like accidentally got removed in the update. Maybe we maybe we're gonna find it as we keep going, but uh, or maybe it literally is just you know doesn't specifically say you have permission to, but because they call out friendly units. Um, oh. <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> okay, interesting. I am looking at the season one rule book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the current one. Okay. Uh, anything to add there as far as the retreat goes? Okay. Um. Note uh, from the FAQ, um, which I know is not really part of this, but it's, it's part of the retreat. Um, if a unit chooses to perform a retreat action, it must actively disengage from combat if possible. It may not elect to perform a retreat and choose not to disengage if it rolled well enough to do so. So if you roll enough and you can go uh, somewhere, then you have to go somewhere. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I, I- might have missed that in the FAQ, actually. It's in the second half of Idleness Means Death. Huh. That's really interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. I guess I'd, I'd missed that when I was doing my... Hey, my this, is, this is actually great. I have a tournament next this coming weekend, so this is a nice, like, refresh for me. <laughs> you know, to be honest, that's, that's what I was thinking when we took this Watchers of the Wall. I think in a lot of instances veteran players just kind of assume you know mm-hmm. they look at the FAQ and they, they skim through for things that changed and then you sort of just assume that you know but uh, this is kind of a, a crash course for even some of the veteran guys can benefit from this so really cool Yes. next we move to an attack action when a combat unit selects an attack it must choose whether it will perform a ranged or melee each has its own special rules ranged may not be performed while engaged uh, unit must have a ranged attack and a viable target within their maximum range, including after their shift. That's important to note. It it goes more into that below. When a unit performs a ranged attack, it may first shift up to two inches as long as, at the end of that shift, a viable target is still within their maximum range and line of sight. So essentially, you can declare a ranged attack on something as long as you can shift into range. Uh, That wasn't immediately clear before, but I don't like to talk about the past. Uh, But this is definitely telling you, like, if you can shift two inches and be able to shoot them, then you're fine to declare that range attack. Once Mm -hmm. the shift is completed, the unit will then select one enemy unit in line of sight and within range of its ranged attack and resolve a ranged attack against the enemy. Any cool niche things to note there? No, no. I can't think of... 
All ranged attacks list whether they are short or long. Short range is 6 inches, long is 12. To determine whether the unit is in range, you place the ruler in contact with the front arrow uh, center of the attacker's front arc and measure to any part of the target's tray. If any part of their tray is within the maximum range, you may target them with a range attack, assuming they are in line of sight. So it gives you some pictures there to look. So you measure from the arrow, and if you can touch them, then you can shoot them as long as they're within that front arc. Yeah, and I think the distinction really to point out is that the range is from the arrow, but the line of sight is from the arc. Yep. And when measuring other things, you don't have to measure from the arrow. The arrow is basically, I view it as being there to show you where the center of the tray is for when you align, to show you which way the tray is facing, and to measure ranged. That's really about all that those things that, are, that, that it's there for. Yep. Agreed. So, Firing into melee. Uh, it's funny that they say desperate measures must be taken. Um, <laughs> I see tons of benefit into shooting into melee when you have things like stubborn tenacity. Oh, and yeah. My aforementioned axle list absolutely tries to abuse me being able to trigger panic tests on my terms. So <laughs> it's an interesting thing to note um, that they word it that way, but I... I think there's a lot of times where you want to fire into melee. Like, I want to do this. I, um, I agree. <laughs> it would yep. seem like it would be something that's, you know, maybe detrimental, but there, there's so much strategic value to shooting into combat and triggering the panic test on your unit um, where you might be able to gain benefit um, from triggering a panic test. Absolutely. Uh, I used to play Rob and Bows, and I ran – Tully Cav with Rickon and Asha in a unit, and you know you try to lay down a weirwood tree, get that unit to three plus morale, and let Rob just fire away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you got one. units like uh, faith units for Baratheons and Lannisters yep. who can generate a faith token uh, yep. when they pass panic tests. So yeah, lots of benefits. Units may freely fire at enemies that are engaged with friendly units, assuming they have the line of sight to said enemy. Again, you can't draw a line of sight through your friends. But by doing so, they will force all friendly units that were engaged with that enemy to suffer a panic test once the attack is completed. That's important. You take your panic test after the enemy takes theirs. Mm-hmm. All because, there. you know, yeah, I mean, like, let's say they have intimidating presence, which, you know, reduces your morale test um, mm-hmm. by one. Um, mm-hmm. If they die from their panic test, then they're not there anymore. <laughs> When Correct. you take yours, right? So, yes, timing timing's important. Exactly why that matters. That exact point right there is why I was bringing it up. Okay. Melee units only performed while engaged. A unit must have a melee attack to select the melee attack option. This might be a carryover from when Dothraki Outriders didn't have it. Um, there's an exception to this. I'm sure it's in the terrain. You can perform a melee attack when you're not engaged if you're attacking a piece of terrain. When a unit performs melee attack and it is engaged with only one enemy unit, it may first choose to change its facing so that it is facing said enemy head-on. A unit engaged from multiple sides may not change its facing. The enemy has prevented them from doing so. This is something that I see people look over like to this day. Um, if you're, If you have two units that are in your flank, and you want to turn to face those two units, you actually can't. Yes, that's right. It's, it's as long as there's more than one, it doesn't matter 
um, if they're in different sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I I've seen a unit get double flank charged. You know, this this happens with uh, Baratheons. Uh, pick on them a little bit because they're kind of pigs. They're usually low unit count, but they're super tanky. Um, a lot of times you'll get, you know, end of round, they charge two units into their flank. You can't turn to face them because this says you, when it performs a melee attack and it is engaged with only one enemy unit and they first change its facing. Uh, but you can't if you're engaged with more than one. And I see people do it all the time. They turn, they're engaged with two units in the flank. They turn to face them, but you're not allowed to do that. And it also specifically states engage from multiple sides, which I, I feel is a little bit redundant because of that first line, but you can't change the facing. Then you shift the tray so that its tray is 100% aligned, center to center, or choose to move 50-50 one way or the other. This becomes important with solos um, because if a solo charges you as an infantry tray, your friends can't come help you charge them in the front. You have to shift over to the solos tray 50% so that your friends can come help you. It's a kind of an interesting situation that comes up with solos and war machine bases. But that said, once these moves are completed, the unit will then select and resolve one of its melee attacks against an enemy that it is engaged with. The enemy does not need to be in your line of sight. You can freely attack any unit it is engaged with. So if they're in your flank, you can still attack them. Yep. And I'm, maybe it's down here. It is down here in the church. All right. Never mind. I was going to bring something up about... Uh, if you can uh, be in 50%, but you can't quite align uh, mm-hmm. 50-50. Mm-hmm. And it's covered later on in the charge. You know, I feel like I'm drowning you out so much on this show. Why don't you take the charge section and then ask me if I have anything to add? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I was going to ask you if you wanted me to start reading some. My would be horse if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so charge. Uh, charge action may not be formed while engaged. So obviously... Uh, this is why you're engaged. You're able to declare your charge action. A unit performs a charge action, must first declare a valid target for its charge. And in order to be a valid target, the following must apply. Target enemy must be an attacker's line of sight for the action, so in the front arc. Uh, the line of sight arc of the target must have space for the attacker's tray to align to at least 50% contact with the target's tray without being obstructed by another unit or terrain. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a 50-50 split. Uh, it just needs to be at least 50% or more of that side of the trail. Uh, we'll explain that in a little bit. So if all of those conditions above are met, the enemy is a valid target for the charge. Uh, you will then perform the following steps in order. So before we move on, anything to add on to there? Yeah, actually, it, if you're playing against something like trappers that can reduce your movement by one, the interesting thing is, so it says there, a unit may never declare a charge it cannot complete. Okay, that's true. That's fine and fair. If you're within six inches and you really feel like you need to make a six-inch charge and then they trap you, they trap you after you declare the charge. So you declare a legal charge, but they can make it an impossible charge. Mm-hmm. Kind of unfortunate, but it's a thing that can happen. I'm not 100% sure. There used to be, like, cards that made you minus two movement. I don't think those exist anymore. But hidden traps can certainly make a charge that you declared illegal after you declared it. 
uh, and then you're just going to fail a charge. And there's not really much you can do about that. Steers I can think of. So I know Night's Watch Coffman, they can uh, ah, perform yeah. a ranged attack, right? And shift, yeah. potentially shift out of charge range? They can. You're correct. Absolutely. And then was it, was it Oberyn? No, I don't think his minus his move does it. Oh, it does. Okay, the Viper Infamy. When an enemy combat unit activates, enemy suffers minus two move when charging Oberyn's unit this turn. See, this is when an enemy combat unit activates. So I would assume, uh, because at the activation, right, if, if you could do the math before you could declare the charge. Yep, and if you that one. That one yeah. would happen, and, and you wouldn't be able to declare that charge if he is out of your charge range. I think it's just the mm. three folk. I think it's just the trappers. I can't say three folk trappers. Uh, three factions now have traps. Um, I think it's the traps and the night's watch ready aim fire, ready aim release, whatever it's called now, mm -hmm. that can force that can make you fail a charge basically because it becomes illegal and you, already you can't yeah, and you can't take it back. You just have to fail the charge. Yep. Cool. All right, so all the conditions are met, um, they're validated for the charge. So you determine your line of Stark, uh, line of Stark, determine line of sight, Stark. See, this is why I want you to read. <laughs> uh, you first determine which of the defenders' line of sight arcs you're in. So uh, going back to the picture where you're looking at the four different arcs, um, wherever the majority of your tree is, um, that will be the arc that you end up in as an attacker, right? So if the charge is successful, the attacker will end up contacting the enemy in that line of sight. Uh, if the attacker's tray crosses into several, which is usually just be two, um, so two of the defender line of sight arcs, use the one the majority of its tray is in the event that it's exactly 50, and sometimes, you know, it's, it's 49, 51, but it, you know, if to the eye, it's 50, 50, um, discuss with your opponent, then the attacker may choose which arc to engage in. Uh, pivot attacker. So once you've determined your line of set arc, you may then pivot. Um, the attacker may then pivot as long as the target enemy remains in the line of sight, will potentially contact the target during its move. Roll charge distance dice and move the attacker. The attacker will then roll a d6. Uh, this roll plus the attacker's speed stat is its total charge distance and the attackers move directly forward the total charge distance, stopping only to contact another unit it cannot cross. So again, that might right there allude to uh, not being able to cross enemy units. <laughs> or a terrain piece it can't cross, in which case it will stop one inch away from that unit terrain piece. If at any point during the move it contacts the target enemy's tray, then it was a successful charge. If it failed to contact the target enemy's tray for any reason, uh, such as rolling too low, it's charge distance. But see, they keep it open, so they say for any reason, but the most common is going to be that you just didn't roll high enough. Uh, the result is a failed charge. And additionally, the attacker suffers... Uh, I'm sorry, additionally, the, if the attacker rolls a one on its charge with the enemy, on you know, a successful charge, the attacker's tray is then aligned to the target tray. Place the attacker so it's aligned either 50% or 100% center to center. Uh, to the defender's tray, and that's important. So it's to the defender's tray. You're not aligning to the attacker's tray, you're aligning on the defender's tray. So if, even if it's a solo, um, you're not splitting it 50-50 on your large infantry base, you're splitting it 50-50 on their solo base, whoever's the defender. 
uh, the attacker, if the attacker cannot be aligned directly at 50% or 100%, their training must be aligned as close to one of the two as possible. Remember that charge to have been valid in the first place, you needed to be able to align at least 50%. Uh -huh. So an important thing to note here, this is an instance that can happen. Um, and you'll learn as you get into the game that you've got to be, you've got to be very careful and think pretty far ahead of your moves um, to make the best moves possible. Because let's say you charge X unit into the front of a unit and you align 50-50 because you think, maybe you'll send someone into the front. Well, when you send a, another friend into the flank, if you've overhung your tray so that you could let someone in the front, you now can't align center to center to their flank. Unless something is blocking you from aligning 50%, you would have to align 50% and overhang your tray, which might expose you. So it's really important to think of all of the implications that can happen um, that gets more into when we go into more, more advanced things about the game. But that's a situation that happens a lot that you need to be aware of because 100% center to center when you're charging, if you've got a unit that's aligned 50%, you can't overlap their tray. So you're gonna, you have to go to 50% if you can, and it can put you in a compromising position. So just be aware of that pay attention to where the terrain is and pay attention to where your friendly units are and where you're wanting to send someone else in to charge because it's happened to me and I, I've seen it happen to people where they kind of get screwed by that because once you align to 50%, maybe you pull yourself three inches closer to your enemy and now they charge your flank. Whereas if you'd been more careful and aligned to the other way or aligned 100%, you could have aligned center to center onto their flank and been out of charge range or range of a shot or something like that. So it, it starts to come up, you know, as you play the game, like there's, there's things that can punish you. Like you might get too close to a unit with Sentinel. You might be in range of their archers that you didn't want to be in. So the, these are things you really need to think about when you're charging. Yep. And I'll read on to engage multiple enemies. So in some cases, after making a successful charge, the attacker may end up in contact with other enemies besides the turn of their charge. If the enemies are in the same arc as the defender, they will be aligned so they're engaging the attacker 50%. Uh, if they cannot be aligned 50% or were in a flank arc, they're instead moved by their owner one inch away from the attacker, or the shortest distance it's possible if one inch is not possible, to avoid being engaged. So, the one thing I'll say is that this does not mean that if you end your charge uh, attacking an enemy unit and there is another enemy unit that's about half an inch away from you, this does not mean that you push that unit to be one inch away. Correct. They, they only get pushed if uh, you would also contact them. Yep, and it's only if they... Like if you contact them and they were they end up in your flank, like you don't move mm -hmm. them into your flank, you push them away. If they're both in the front, they actually get dragged into the combat, which there are certain cases where you as the player might want to put both of your units on the exact same plane so that you, the unit does get sucked in. So in the case of like hold the line 
or some other similar effect that happens when you're engaged, you might want to be engaged. And that, that's a tricky way to start your activation engaged so you can get those cool effects. Yeah, and, and it, I'll tell you how rare this, this can occur. I mean, they need to be exactly side by side, right? I mean, there's no magnetic effect if one unit is a millimeter back from the other. Uh, there's the potential that you're not going to touch both of those units, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it almost only happens when it's intentional. Yeah, it I'm almost thinking. never happens outside of that. It's so rare. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah, once everything's in their final positions, the attacker will perform one melee attack. Uh, and I believe this is the one that has been um, FAQ'd, correct? That is, it's no longer a melee attack action. It is just a melee attack. Correct. Uh, this attack is the bonus being able to reroll any attack dice, which is the combat bonus. Uh, it's described in a couple of pages. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, moving on. So disorderly charges. So this is page 17. Uh, disorderly charges. So several things can complicate a charge, leading to delayed orders or improper coordination. Uh, in the event the attacker rolls a one, a natural one for its charge distance, they stuff a disorderly charge. They do not gain the charge bonus for this attack, and the attacker may not play his cards for the remainder of the player's turn. And um, Brett, if you had anything to add on to that? Oh, this one matters a lot. So yeah. to begin with, um, you're always disorderly on a roll of one or two. There, uh, There is a card. The only one I can really think of off the top of my head is superior positioning, where you will suffer a disorderly charge on a one, two, or a three, uh, but that's stipulated on the card. So Tactics card and, like, unit rules can override the rule book, right? So if mm-hmm. it's specifically telling you something happens, you can't fault back to the rule book and say, like, oh, well, I'm not disorderly because I didn't roll a one. The, the rule book says only on a one. Those cards and other effects that add stipulations will override what's in the rule book. Now, with this, it's important to remember that you can't play cards for the whole turn. It's not mm-hmm. just for the attack. It's not like, oh, crap, I can't play ours as the Fury. Like, you're actually, like, you can be in trouble. Disorderly charges can be really bad because, for example, if you're a Lannister player and you charged and you were, you're expecting all this big panic damage and they play, uh, like, um, they play an automatically pass panic card, you can't even counterplot it because you can't play a card. Um if you were wanting to use Horrific Visage to trigger one of your heal cards, like Baratheon Conviction, you can't trigger that card. You can't play that card because you're disorderly. You can't play Overrun. You can't any cards. Um, again, going back in time just a little bit, the, this used to only apply to the attack. So once the attack was completed, you could play cards again. Uh, so you were allowed to play Overrun. Now they've changed it to where it's the whole turn. Um and it's a big deal. So <laughs> it's just the luck of the dice. But yeah, disorderly charges are very punishing. Um, no rerolls, which is the primary reason you want to charge, and then no tactics cards as well. So it's very punishing. Yeah, agreed. And, and you know, that, like this becomes a reason why being able to reroll charge dice, uh, if you ever see that available as ability. Um, even when you're guaranteed to get in, because this doesn't necessarily mean you fail your charge, right? You can roll a one and add your, your unit's movement speed stat. 
uh, and still make the charge. You lose the ability to play tactics cards and you lose the reroll. Um, but being able to reroll your charge distance dice is, is handy for avoiding this situation. Uh, a failed charge. So many things can lead to a unit not contacting its target. Most times, failing to roll high enough. Uh, for whatever the reason, if you the attacker does not contact the target during the move, as a result of the failed charge, the attacker will suffer panic, and then its activation immediately ends. Yep. And so I think with this one, I mean, we we could talk about it, but is a failed charge is a type of move. So you're still. I have always played it as you can end a failed charge within an inch of an enemy, but I actually think that's wrong. I think you have to push an inch away, right? Uh, so let's see. You know, good. It's a good question. <laughs> it's a move, right? So you have to yeah. an inch away. Yeah, I think you're supposed to end an inch away. That's see, I'm a veteran and I do stuff like this. <laughs> I mean, by reading the rule book, unless it's in the FAQ, which again we'll get back to that later. And I'm sorry if we're saying stuff wrong here, but I think as a move you have to be an inch away, right? Yeah, I want to say somewhere in here it says a charge is the only time you can come within an inch of an enemy. Okay, you go on to resolving attack, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to comb through the FAQ really quick. No, I, I, I think you're right. And to be honest, I've played it as I stop an inch away. But, uh, no, that's a good point. Because. Somewhere in here, it's got to describe um, that a charge is the exception to that rule. That you a charge is the time when you uh, can well you can end inch. within an inch on a charge. But, all right, I'm path. sure we will find it. Hold on. Um, so moving That's... on to uh, resolving attacks. Mm-hmm. All right. So resolving attacks. So you de- determine attack dice. Each attack lists a number of dice it rolls, which is in turn based on the unit's remaining ranks. Those are the colored boxes on the uh, unit right card. Sorry, we covered it, and I'm yeah. done. Units may never end within an inch of an enemy, except when moving as part of a charge action. So even a failed charge is a charge action. So yeah, you can end within an inch during a charge. Ignore Brett. Disregard. So you can fail charge and be, let's say, half an inch away. Yeah, because that's still a charge action, even if it's a failed charge. Yeah, wow. That's still <laughs> that has other implications that's uh, pretty neat as well, because uh, now the enemy that you've ended within less than an inch of, uh, they, if they want to move or do anything at all, right, that, that they have to then get an inch away from you. Yeah, so, you know, it's actually... Um, while we're talking about this real quick, I think we'll close up resolving attacks and then we'll pick up the back half of the rule book another day. But okay. it's kind of funny that this has come up. You and I both know Mickey. Maybe not everybody knows Mickey. Mickey Mazarath. Uh, he's, in fact, an excellent player, debatably best in the world, definitely in the conversation for one of the best for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, he was telling me when he played Free Folk that one of his favorite things to do was to fail charges because of the log jam that it would create for their opponent. <laughs> so he like he would make he would pivot in a way such that failing the charge would block lanes like in a really bad way. Situations that you can't create like with maneuvers and marches. And yeah, there was a point he and I were talking 
And he was like, yeah, that's actually sometimes want to fail charges when I'm playing free folk. Like, I just want to log jam them because I can get in spots where you're not legally able to maneuver. And mm-hmm. I, I've, I've been in that position too, where I was like, well, like in Dance with Dragons, my unit's morale three. It's like, yeah, well, I was going to say, what's the worst that can happen? I move faster than I can move anyway. Screw it. Go mm-hmm. for the charge. But yeah, just to keep in mind as you get more advanced in your tactics, I, there can be benefit to, the way you angle and, and fail a charge. Just end up somewhere yep. that you can legally maneuver to and be a pain in the ass. And I'll tell you what, what I commonly use it for with my Starks. Um, so, you know, you march, you can double your move, but you don't get a pivot before you march. Mm-hmm. Um, but with a, with a charge, uh, <laughs> you do get a pivot, right? So, yep. so I need to head, you know, if I need to head to the right or to the left and I feel like I've got a good morale for that, uh, I'll use it as sort of a maneuver plus, right? Um, if something's about 12, 11 inches away, you know, and that's the maximum of my charge distance, um, sometimes I'll just take that charge. If I failed, I'll, I'll get more out of it than I would have if I just maneuvered. Um, but, you know, maybe there's a five or a six on the dice, and best case scenario, I get a charge. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's sometimes where failing a charge isn't necessarily uh, the worst thing that you do yeah i mean that's pretty low actually (laughs) (laughs) all right resolving attacks so you determine your attack dice and then you roll attack dice um and what's important about all of these two is as we go through and list these steps um a lot of these steps are also synonymous with timing triggers on tactics cards orders and abilities that units have um and if something says before x uh, so let's say somebody says before rolling attack dice. Um, I, I believe, Brett, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it, it's basically you're going to plug that in right between after the thing above it, but right before the thing itself, right? So turn the attack dice and then trigger anything that tells you to trigger before rolling attack dice. Then you roll attack dice. Attack dice. Each roll equaling or exceeding the attacks to hit value is a hit. Each roll not fail can be its value is a miss. Additionally, each die roll that is a one is always a miss, and each die roll that is a six is always a hit, regardless of modifiers. Um, before so we move up. on, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, let me think. Um, I just want to clear this up before we move too far past this section. Mm-hmm. So when you have things like an enemy's ability, like the real or faithful, horrific visage, whatever it is, these things will tell you to do something before resolving in the attack, at which point that happens before determining attack dice. So I hear people ask, okay, I was full rank, I charged into Blackguard, I took horrific visage and I failed and I lost a rank, how many dice do I roll? Well, horrific visage specifically states before resolving that attack, which press which takes precedence over any of these steps. So you're going to determine your attack dice after you've resolved horrific visage. And yep. on the on the counter side, it, it could be beneficial. Again, if you've got a I heal when I pass morale. So if you charge in and you're not at full ranks, you hit horrific visage, you pass, then you go up in a rank. That happens before as well. Carry on. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out before we got too far past that. No, yeah, thank you, and that's great. And and I'll also add to this. So uh, there are some abilities in the game that will increase your odds to hit. Um, I can think of one that's lead 
by example, which is a card that says melee attacks gain plus one hit. That is not plus one to the dice roll. That does not make your fives a six um, or your ones a two. That is just lowering the threshold for you to hit. A natural one is always a miss, and a natural six is always a hit, regardless of modifiers. Um, you'll then apply attack die rerolls. So if either player has effects that cause an attack die to be rerolled, they are applied now. Once the final results have been generated, any effects that trigger after attack dice are rolled may be used. Yep, that seems legit. The only thing with applying rerolls, this gets kind of wonky with simultaneous timing. Um, I think I should probably wait for the simultaneous timing, and then we'll circle back to this one, because it gets wonky with weakened tokens and rerolls mm-hmm. based because you can make out-of-turn attacks. So, but we'll get back to that because I, I want to do I want to do that one in order. Yeah, and I I actually think you can go ahead and cover it now. If we're going to end on page seventeen, I think I think you can keep it. I think it is relevant um, to mention how rerolls are handled and and the active player. Um, yep. Because yeah, go ahead and speak to that. So when things are simultaneous, this is always the case. The active player always declares and then resolves theirs first. So if you are charging an enemy and they are weakened and they play set for charge, that allows them to make an attack. Now let's suppose they have battle endurance or something to give them rerolls. In this weird instance, they will roll their attack dice. You are the active player, so you expend the weakened token, and then they reroll with their reroll benefit. It's the opposite of how it normally works. Um, and that can come up with panic tests, and it can come up with vulnerable tokens as well. So those tokens are an effect that's applying a reroll, but they still have to adhere to who is the who is the um, active player, the player mm-hmm. whose turn it is, what it's called now. So stuff that happens out of sequence, like you're taking a panic test on your own turn, you would have to use your panic test rerolls before they use their panic tokens. It just yeah. gets a little bit wonky, but it's not really that bad. It's not something that comes up like all the time, but just always keep in mind whose turn it is, and they do their effects first. So in this case, generally what's going to happen is you charge them, you're weakened, you do your charge bonus rerolls, then they weaken you. That's the yeah. normal flow of things. And it's stated later on in the in the rule book, but uh, just to state it here, a die may only ever be rerolled once per player. So yeah. you can have a die be rerolled once, and then your opponent can re-roll, have you reroll that same die. Yep. Uh, so apply attack die reroll, and then the defender rolls defense die. So for each hit, the defender will roll one die. Each roll equating or die that rolls a six is an automatic success, always blocks a hit, regardless of modifiers. And a roll of one, always a failure, regardless of modifiers. Apply defense die rerolls. Again, this goes back to the active player doing theirs first. If either player has effects that would cause the defense dice to be rerolled, they're applied. And if the final results have been generated uh, after any effects that trigger after defense dice are rolled, may now be used. The defender suffers wounds. For each unblocked hit, the defender suffers one wound, unless otherwise noted by. Uh, the unit, each wound, removes one model from the unit. 
So that's the default. So the exception to that rule is something like cavalry or solo model where their card would state uh, how many wounds per model. Yep. And while we're talking about defender rules, defense dice, just as a sum, when it comes to all of these steps, uh, this is a question that beginners have a lot. Pyromancers don't allow defense saves. Um, my opponent wants to play Shield of the Realms of Men, but I told him he can't because we, he, he doesn't get a roll defense save. So how can he play this card after defense dice are rolled if he never rolled defense dice? You always resolve these in order, no matter what, no matter mm -hmm. what. Like, even if your attack says everything automatically hits, um, you still roll dice. No matter what happens, well, not that you price of failure, you still roll dice. But my point is you, you complete every step and allow those trigger opportunities, even if it's something that would, you would think would skip that, like a giant mighty swing just does direct wounds. Uh, but that, there's still a step where the defender can play a card that happens after attack dice are rolled or after defense dice are rolled. Even if you don't actually roll them, each of these steps is always there and is always a trigger opportunity because you might want to play Shield of the Realms of Men just to get it out of your hand and have that card attached for the plus one block. So you have to give them that opportunity. Yeah, and this next bullet point actually just really hammers that home. Uh, so once wounds have been dealt, the defender takes a panic test. If the defender did not suffer any wounds from the attack, they do not need to roll. They automatically pass this test. So the test still happens. Uh, even if there were no wounds, you skip the defender panic test. Uh, in fact, happens and they automatically pass, and that can uh, sometimes trigger <laughs> additional beneficial effects for the unit passing the defense test. Yep. And attack completed. So once all these steps have been performed, the attack will be completed. After this, any abilities and effects to trigger after a unit is attacked can be played, and once this is done in the case of melee attack, the attacker may also be able to search for it. Real quick, so if the attacker completely destroys the defending unit with a melee attack, including the panic test, that's, that's important. I think a lot of new players uh, have that question. Is, is the panic test and the damage from the panic test included in the melee attack? And yes, it is. Uh, their momentum allows the search for it. So once all abilities, effects, and or cards that trigger from the attack solution, including units being destroyed, have been resolved, the attacker may make one free maneuver action, assuming they're unengaged, assuming that they're not engaged with uh, any other units. Uh, and additionally, any other friendly units that were engaged with that enemy and only that enemy may make a free pick. So only the unit that makes the attack is the one that gets to surge forth and form the maneuver. Uh, any of your friendly units that were engaged with an enemy that are now unengaged, they just get to pick. Okay. I think it's going to cut us off in like 30 seconds, so maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Um, just the important thing to note from this is search forth is the dead last thing to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't use your search forth to get out of range for their sentinel or something. Just note that whatever after attacks are completed, search forth is done afterwards. And then you, of course, you have to follow the rules of you can't pivot and end overlapping a friend. A lot of times when they're crunched together in a melee, Sometimes pivoting isn't really possible, um, mm -hmm. but you can choose the order in which you search forth and pivot. So you can do the best that you can. There will be instances where that combat ends though, and you're kind of just stuck in that spot. Yep. 
agree. Ah, this seems like a good place to end it too. <laughs> yeah, 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 we're right halfway through. So yeah. thanks for listening. Um, I didn't realize it was going to take this long. We'll have to carry this over to another show, and uh, then we'll touch on the FAQ. But uh, hope you learned something from this, and thanks for tuning in with us. Thanks, y'all. All right. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.